Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That portion of God's holy word, which we will consider this morning, the Holy Spirit caused the evangelist John to write for our great comfort. A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Let us pray. O God, our Maker, Redeemer, and Comforter, we are assembled in your presence to hear your holy word. We pray you so to open our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we may be taught to repent of our sins, to believe on Jesus in life and in death, and to grow day by day in grace and holiness. Hear us for Christ's sake. Amen. The Christian religion is one of both suffering and joy. It is a religion which promises everlasting life and promises it freely without us doing a single thing, without us earning anything, paying for anything. It is free because God has done it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on our mortal flesh and blood and defeated all of our enemies. Every sin of our life, of which we are afraid, that great old evil foe, the devil who deceives the nations and who is at work in the sons of disobedience, is overcome by Jesus Christ who crushed his head on the cross when he truly died for us. And then when he rose again from the grave to ensure that everything he says is true and that we will soon follow him to that eternal joy which God prepared beforehand for those who love him. And yet, God lays upon us suffering in this life. He puts crosses on us. And the suffering and these crosses do not earn us eternal life. And yet, they show us eternal life. And they teach us to long for that life and that joy which no man can take from us. Now, Jesus says to his disciples, on the night he is betrayed, that's what this is from, John 16. There are four chapters where Jesus speaks to the disciples and teaches them after he has washed their feet and on the way to Gethsemane. He teaches them so that they will be prepared for what is to come and so that they might remember it after he rises from the dead. And this part of his sermon to them, his last sermon to them, teaches them how to endure suffering. A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now he goes on, they go on to say more little whiles. There's seven little whiles, which I think is very purposeful. The Holy Spirit wants to impress upon you and on your heart that the times when you don't feel Jesus in your life are but a little and this is very, very hard for us to believe. We know the objective knowledge. There are two basic ways that we receive the gospel and the truth about Jesus. 
We receive it objectively. We know and we just confess that Jesus came down from heaven as the Son of God, became man, suffered, died, and rose for us, and pleads for us at God's right hand and will come soon. We know this. We believe it in our minds and in our heads, and we confess it. That is what we call objective knowledge. But there is another knowledge which is more needful often, especially in the times when God tests us, when God allows trials into our life, and that is called practical knowledge. People talk about head knowledge and heart knowledge. Maybe it's somewhat similar to that. But the practical knowledge is actually holding on to this little while, this promise that it is just a little while, when everything in you argues against it. When you have no evidence that it will end. When you have no explanation for why it is happening, and so seemingly no cure for how it will be over, or when. And this is what we see the disciples say, we don't know what he's talking about this little while. Human reason, though it ponder, cannot fathom any wonder of God. Whoever trusts in his own understanding above the Lord is trusting in what perishes. And it is in God's good wisdom that he allows us to suffer so that we might learn to trust in him and not in our own understanding. Now, there are different little whiles that we experience. Everyone has to go through pain, whether they are a Christian or a Gentile. Everyone has his losses in life, and everyone has his joys. The losses could be bad health, could be friends forsaking you, it could be the loss of your job or your wealth, it could be the loss of your reputation, people slandering you, it could be some psychological problem. You can't figure things out. could be losing your loved ones. All of these things are very painful in life. And God teaches us to trust in him as we endure these losses. When we just, I didn't translate it very well. But basically, Paul Gerhardt says, I yield to him everything. I, nothing I have is mine. It all belongs to God. So if he takes it away from me, and I'll give it to him, as long as I have Jesus. But what happens often under these crosses is what happened to the disciples, literally, and happens to us in our faith, in our heart. You will remember, the disciples were overjoyed that Jesus was with them. Jesus went after the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees for trying to rebuke them for not fasting like they did, instead eating and drinking. And Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when they will fast, when I am taken from them. And that is what happened. They had just celebrated the Passover, received this beautiful meal, whereby they could always remember him. He had knelt down and washed their feet and taught them that new commandment, which always remains new to love one another. And then he gave them this beautiful sermon and, and then prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17 to God. He had taught them that he was the vine and they were the branches. He had taught them so much. And then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane 
and the three he takes with them fall asleep while he is sorrowful unto death. They can't even watch and pray with him. And then when Judas the betrayer comes and seizes him with the troops, they all leave, flee, abandon their Savior. Peter tries to make up for it and goes and ends up denying his Savior three times. And then he is falsely accused by his own people. He's spit on and mocked, prophesy, who hit you? He's brought to Pilate, who beats him to try to get them to get some pity, but no pity. Crucify him, crucify him. And they make him bear his cross and strip him naked and mock him on the cross. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. Pierce his hands and his feet. And he experiences such great anguish that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hungers and he thirsts for your righteousness. And yet the disciples, the only one we know was there, was John. He saw from a distance. All of this. A little while and you will not see me. And then he was laid in a tomb, which a stranger gave to him. Fulfilling the prophecy, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death because he had done no violence. And neither was there any lie in his mouth. Can you imagine what the disciples felt? They had all sworn that even if they had to die with him, they would never, ever forsake him. Never be offended by him. And then they saw what happened. And it was cruel. It was painful. It was torturous. It isn't just that they have lost this wonderful, beautiful companion whom they saw to cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead and, and even let them be stupid and, and he would gently rebuke them. Sometimes a little bit more harshly, but he was always gentle to them and loved them. Nobody ever had a friend like this before and now he was gone. And they couldn't see it. And they felt guilty about it because they knew it was their sins and their cowardice and their lack of love for him. That is what it means not to see Jesus. And this happens to us. Under the cross, we don't turn to Jesus. It happens to us. We don't feel him anymore. We feel no strength. We see the world with its power and its pleasure and its money and its influence. And on the one hand, we're tempted to join them. And on the other hand, we despair because they're so powerful. In the name of their God, they mutilate children and kill babies and steal from hardworking people, start wars and kill millions of people. And act like everything's just fine. And then we have our own sins. Grumble and complain like the Israelites. There are old besetting sins that come back to us in our weakness. Instead of turning to Christ in prayer, the disciples left Jesus. And we have too with our many sins. And at that moment, it seems like Jesus isn't there. Why would he be there? 
How could he be there? We can't feel him. Our faith can't see him because it's been blinded by the world's power and our own sin and our own fears and our own weakness. And that is perhaps, I think, the greatest sorrow that we have to endure on this earth. We have the devil sending us depressing thoughts. We have doubts. We're perplexed. We can't figure it out. We're weak. And it is in that moment, it is in those moments, that we must cling to this little while that is spoken seven times. A little while. You must believe that it's a little while. You must take that knowledge that is in your head, that objective knowledge that you know that he was crucified, died, and on the third day rose. And you must cling to these words a little while and know that Jesus proved it was a little while. Jesus proved it was a little while. He rose from the dead. And he saw them again, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It is a strange thing. The world can't understand it. Our flesh can't understand it. How God treats his children. How just as Christ was humiliated and cast aside by this world, so his Christians must be in this life. It is a scandal to the world to see the church seemingly so divided, so weak and poor. But I'd like you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, which I think are a commentary on this verse in John. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now that is our faith. That's what we believe. Justified by faith. That means that God counts to us, reckons to us, imputes to us, credits to us all of Christ's righteousness, his obedient suffering and death upon the cross, his entire life, his victory over sin, his victory. Priscilla, you go back to your mom right now. Sorry. His victory over everything, every one of our enemies. When you, get, when you think that God is angry at you because of your sins, yet you hear the gospel and you hear that God made him to be sin for you, and we are reconciled at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We cast aside all of our fears of what we have done and look at what Christ has done and say, there is my righteousness, there is my peace with God. And because I have this peace with God, I have access into this undeserved love, this favor, this goodwill of God, this grace. And I find that I am standing in it. That every one of my sins is washed away by the blood of Christ. My baptism teaches me this every single day. I am assured of this in this holy sacrament which we will celebrate. I believe it when God's minister says, I forgive you, that this is Jesus telling me that I am justified. That he has poured into my broken heart the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and cleansed me from all my sins. And I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that I will be spotless and clean on the day of judgment with no feeling of pain in my body and no memory of sin in my conscience. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We boast. But he goes on. And Paul says, moreover, we rejoice in our sufferings. What? You just tell me this beautiful story, and then you tell me that I rejoice in my sufferings? Why? Well, Paul explains. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not leave us ashamed. We don't know the why. We can't find the cause and the effect. We don't know who. We don't understand it. So how can we rejoice? Because we know the one who is allowing it is the one who is taking it away. And we know that while we are in the midst of these sorrows, we find a God who is gracious to us and who comes to us in all the bitterness of life and sweetens everything with his mercy, and with his truth. How he turns our eyes away from what the world is hankering after, things that perish, things that fade, things that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And he shows to the brokenhearted that he is near to them. And he opens the eyes of our heart in a little while so that we see that glory of God which is soon come. And we look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world you remember in the Old Testament when God delivered his people Israel from bondage to Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt with a mighty arm through the blood of the Passover lamb and through the angel of death he struck Egypt and they sent them away with golden clothing and they traveled to the Red Sea. Pharaoh hardened his heart and said, no, I want these slaves back and he came with his army and God had Moses reach out his staff and touch the ground and the sea parted and Israel passed through on dry land. But then the army of, of Pharaoh came in after them and the Red Sea then closed over them and the Lord was in the midst of the water hurling them into the sea and they saw their dead bodies floating on the shore and all Israel sang a beautiful song. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. It was a beautiful day. They were saved by grace. And then he led them into the wilderness, and they didn't have any water. He led them to a, a place that was called Mara, which means bitter. It's where the word Miriam and Mara, uh, Mary comes from. And they tasted the water, and it was bitter. And they couldn't drink it because it was so bitter. And then God had Moses take a piece of wood and throw it into the water, and the bitter water became sweet. Now, this is a foreshadow of your life. God redeems you from slavery to sin. He redeems you from the fear of death. He redeems you from the devil. He saves you from his accusations. He gives you peace with God. and says, no, I'm going to triumph for you. Those who have no strength, I will give strength to. You will soar like eagles. And then what does he do? He gives you a hard time. He lets you taste the bitterness of this earthly life. 
How does he sweeten it? Just as Moses put the cross in the water, or the wood in the water, so you must put the cross of Christ into the bitterness of what you are drinking. And it will sweeten it. Still to see your Savior near under every cross you bear. Because what is our greatest misery and what is our greatest sorrow? It is not feeling and knowing Jesus. And how is that taken away but when we repent in dust and ashes and say, I cannot make this bitter water sweet. I don't know why it's bitter, but only you can. And so Jesus preaches his cross to us while we are underneath our cross. And he shows us how willing he is to suffer for us. How willing he was to take every single sin that the world denies, but that you confess all of your grumbling and bitterness, all of your besetting sins, that you have no strength to resist, but he overcomes them. He overwhelms them with his mercy. He blots them out with his blood. And in the midst of all of your sadness and anxieties and trials, the comfort of the forgiveness of sins delight your soul. They lift you up, and you see Jesus. You see him by faith. You see him that he is not angry with you, though you felt it. He is not trying to make you pay for your sins because the cross teaches that he paid for them all. He is not purposely meaning you harm. Everything is for your good. He only wants you to taste and see that he is good. Because he is the one who proves that it is only a little while. He is the one who overcomes the little while of sin and death for you. And as long as you cling to him in every trial of your life, he will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death into eternal life. Jesus compares the sorrow that Christians have in not seeing Jesus, not feeling him, to a woman who is about to give birth. Now, I have witnessed this nine times in my life because we have twins. And I don't ever want to do that. It is a very painful thing for a woman. And a few times... Becky, in the midst of her labor, has said, I can't do this. And I guess I understand that. And I said, no, you have to. <laughs> and she's asked me often to pray the Lord's Prayer with her in the midst of those times. And there is a story of a woman, a Lutheran woman, in the 1500s in Joachimsthal, Joachim's Valley, mining town, in the Iron Range between Bohemia and Germany. And she was in labor for a whole day. And she was about to give up. And she didn't think that she could do it. And in those days, you would have students who would go out singing for food. And there was a young boy going around singing with his little hat, trying to get money. And he sang, And obituary through the night and in the morning waken, my heart shall never doubt his might, nor count itself forsaken. To this, O ye of Israel, see, ye of the Spirit born indeed, 
wait for your Lord's appearing. And the woman took courage and popped out a big baby boy. My soul waits for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. You cling to that little word a little while, and you believe it even though you don't understand it, and that knowledge which was just in your head becomes in your heart. It is the most practical knowledge that you can have as a Christian. It is the knowledge that as soon as this is gone, the woman forgets her anguish for joy that a man has been born into this world. And I've seen that too. Seen that joy. The joy of a woman who gave birth to a human being. Now we live in a world that avoids having children because it's too painful. They don't think that the little while is worth it for the joy of a human being being born. And we are strangers and pilgrims on this, in this earth. That is, our citizenship is in heaven. We're looking for a different homeland. We're looking for a different life than what this world offers us. And if this life is a little bit bitter now, we should remember that God's blessings, that the ones he puts into our life to love, these are the ones, these are the little Christs whom God has given us to serve. And that the little while that we need to suffer for them is only a little while. Seven times it is said. And it is worth it. It is worth it to pray for a kid gone straying. It's worth it to clean the dirty diaper and wipe the snot off a kid's face. It's worth it for the joy that that child gives you. Now how much more, how much more is it worth it to wait and trust in Christ when you don't feel him and know that it is but a little while, a little while, and he will see you again. Your heart will rejoice, and your joy no man will take from you. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.